The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to the second intermission episode for the month of October 2016 on They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and we shall again be doing what we've been doing for the entire month of October and providing you with more horror movie reviews. Seeing as this podcast sort of leans towards horror movies anyway, we decided to provide more bonus content for you guys in an appreciation for everyone listening and supporting the podcast. More bang for your buck, essentially, even though you don't pay a penny to listen to this. Unlike the previous bit of bonus content I did with Paul, where we covered Lumberto Bava's Demons 1 and 2, here we'll present a bit more of a mixed bag. There'll be a segment from myself and then two other segments, each provided by a guest reviewer. I will be talking about a recent release, which is a short horror film called Lake Nowhere, which is an homage to 80s slasher films. And then we're going to move on to our two guests. First guest is going to be a future guest host on an official episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, and that would be James Murphy. In fact, his episode will be dropping the day after this episode shows up. On that episode, we'll be talking about The Skull and Theater of Blood. But here he talks about classic Roger Corman, and he also sneaks in a non-horror film as well, but we'll forgive him this time. Also, a previous guest on the podcast uh, shows up again to give us a pretty extensive little audio essay on all the sort of great eras of horror in cinema and the sort of standout films for him in the different eras. And that would be Jack Graham. If you are familiar with the podcast and have been listening for a while, you'll remember that he was with us in our excellent episode about Blood Simple and Blue Velvet. In fact, our most popular episode, our most downloaded episode anyway. Um... So it would be really nice to have him on again. Both of these gentlemen were very nice to basically sacrifice their time and provide some content. Again, I will send my thanks to these two gentlemen, and I hope you guys enjoy these segments. I think you will. Both of these guys know their shit when it comes to horror movies, and so they have some interesting things to say. So yeah, we will come back from a little bit of an ad break of some podcasts that I love and then we will move on to my segment on Lake Nowhere. Then we might take a music break, move on to the other two segments, and then end with some more music. We'll see how it happens. I don't have it quite planned out yet, but we'll see. Okay, guys, hope you enjoy. Be right back. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms. 
Leeds City will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. The Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B-movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it. Send Rick and Danny in Wool Rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail, Hail Ming. Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Judd too? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hemming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming. For now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Hey, Ming. Breaking two? Electric Boogaloo? Samurai Cop? Army of Darkness? Flash Dance? <laughs> <laughs> We might destroy the planet if it's flashed <laughs> Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Oh, necrophilia. Oh, oh, oh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. 
I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie to jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history doll popping up at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did you watch this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. I'm going to talk a little bit about Lake Nowhere from 2016. This is directed by Christopher Phelps and Maxim von Skoy, written by Christopher Phelps and R.S. Fitzgerald. It is right now available on VOD for rent or purchase. If you want to rent it, it's about three to four dollars, and purchase is around eight to nine dollars, depending on where you live, of course. It's on VOD on YouTube and Vimeo right now. It's probably on another couple places that I don't know about, but those are the two major ones that I do know about. You can also purchase a Brink Vision released Blu-ray DVD combo, and there's all kinds of extras on that. Now, this is a short film, uh, independently made short film, partially crowdfunded by Indiegogo. It was shot in about six days, I think, in uh, somewhere in upstate New York. I guess it's... Uh, Sakendaga Lake. I probably fucked that right up. Yeah, it's 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 very small production. Basically, a crew of ten people, eight actors, and a dog. And uh, they began production in 2013 with this uh, production. I think kind of ended around 2014, and it's only now getting released. So I I assume there's probably some um, financial problems there. You know, they had to shop it around to festivals and stuff like that, but. Uh, essentially what this is is a throwback slasher film and I know what you're probably thinking right away like oh god another one of these fucking things right this is very much a throwback to 80s slasher films and it definitely goes for that aesthetic Uh, not only does it go for that aesthetic it goes on the sort of premise that you are watching a VHS dubbed version from some source whether it be bootleg or off of TV or whatever that is how it's presented. And before you scoff at that and you think, oh great, another fucking Quentin Tarantino, uh, Robert Rodriguez kind of grindhouse thing where, you know, obvious fake jump cuts and scratches, let me dissuade you from that because this is pretty much a near-perfect kind of representation, recreation of what dubbing over and over on a VHS tape was like. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people maybe listening to this probably have no clue what the fuck that was like because they probably never used a VHS tape in their lives but uh, believe me this is actually pretty close to what it feels like it feels like someone recorded about 45 minutes of a slasher film and you'll get you know tracking errors in the actual uh, film you you get little jumps here and there where they're stopping for commercials coming back Uh, You get the timing is not always 100% correct, so you'll get little pieces of the previous stuff that was on the tape popping up that did not get recorded over. They they go for that aesthetic, and they pull it off very, very well. It looks like a old dub of a VH, you know, on a VHS. It's got that sort of semi-faded out color 
to it. Uh, the sound is a little uh, low. But yeah, it, it's very, very well done. They actually stick five minutes of fake trailers on the beginning of it as well. So it, it almost feels like this is like a legit dubbing of a bootleg of some sort, of like a VHS release. So you, you get like a trailer for this fake Giallo film that actually I want to see. It looks pretty good. You get a fake dubbing of this sort of ecological horror film involving like sort of like Food of the Gods kind of thing where, you know, this sort of uh, serum of some sort is turning animals and plants into giant creatures and uh, it, lo it looked pretty interesting as well. Not quite as well done as the Giallo one, but it's still pretty good. And then there's this fake commercial for White Wolf Lager Beer, uh, which actually appears in the actual film, too, with the characters drinking it. But uh, uh, I, I thought it was pretty cute. It was it was nice. So, yeah, this is a slasher film. It, it's the classic kids go to an isolated cabin in the woods. Uh, here they're by the lake, the titular Lake Nowhere, of course. And, uh, you know, they engage in sex, drugs, and rock and roll in this isolated area. And they are being stalked, point of view style, from a masked killer in the woods. And uh, it leads to their deaths, of course. Very, very classic. Uh, nothing new there. That's what I kind of like about this. It doesn't try to be too cute with this shit. It, it, it's very much trying for an authentic recreation of what these films were kind of like back in the day. And it's not trying to be clever, it's not trying to be tongue-in-cheek, it's not trying to be witty. You know, oh you, we, we've all watched these films when we were younger, and we love them so much, and here's what we thought were funny about them. It's none of that bullshit, it's trying to go straight up. Like, just this cheap, low-budget horror film that was made in the 1980s. Probably late 1980s, by the looks of things. But Yeah, so you get the POV shots, the killer. Uh, the killer is a sort of a masked woodsman survivalist type of killer. If you know the movie The Final Terror, think that. It's kind of close to that, uh, but kind of combines as well the sort of stature and um, mentality, I guess, of Jason Voorhees. So there, there's sort of a combination of those two sort of slasher killers in the woods kind of thing. Very well done. Uh, the film is actually a bit deeper than what you might realize on the first watch, and I think that's the benefit of this being only about 45 minutes long you can rewatch it without any sort of problem like you you can watch it twice in a row and that's what i did actually i've actually watched it three times since i rented it on vimeo and i picked up a lot of stuff in the next two rewatches and again it's not super deep but it sort of introduces a supernatural kind of element to it and it's done very well it's kind of fucking creepy and it sets up all the stuff you see later in the film. There's these establishing shots, establishing little things that set up what's going to happen later up in the film. It's very well done. It's very cleverly done. And again, it doesn't try to go super pretentious. It doesn't try to make any sort of fucking point. It's just a real kind of love letter to 80s slasher films. And so it feels like some low-budget production with someone behind it who had a bit more skill as far as writing a story and had some ideas and... I think the biggest failure of this is I wish it was actually feature length. I mean, I, I know they're going for a, an aesthetic. They're trying to pull off this feel of, oh, only 45 minutes of this film got recorded on the tape. So there's missing, there's probably like a whole missing reel in this. Like there's a whole 30 minutes or so gone that should be in this. I want to see the extra 30 minutes of this film, honestly. But of course, also budget reasons, they, they, they probably just didn't have the time to fil film it. So they, they had to work with, a certain idea and they had to work within their budget and they do an incredible fucking job 
it, they just leave me wanting to see more, honestly. Uh, because this was really well done. It doesn't feel... It, it just doesn't feel like the film's winking at you, which I really appreciate. I don't like seeing that shit. I like stuff like Ty West's House of the Devil. I like We Are Still Here that recently came out, where they recreate that aesthetic of an older horror film from, like, the 70s or 80s, and they're not, you know, saying, hey, weren't these funny? Weren't these easy to laugh at? Weren't these bullshit? No, they weren't bullshit. There was a lot of good stuff back in the day amongst all the shit, and they're trying to give you some of that here, and I really appreciate it. I think they did a really great job, and I think this is very much worth finding, and uh, I would even recommend a purchase on this. Uh, Definitely rent this. Like I said, available for rent. Uh, As it stands, this is really good. It's worth your 50 minutes of your time. It's it's a lot of fun, especially if you love slasher films, because this does a really good job with it. I kind of appreciate how some of the special effects are really good, and then some of them come off a little hammy, and I think it's kind of intentionally done. Like, it's like, yeah, we didn't have quite the budget in that part of the film. But we did have the budget here, and man, here's here's where we started out where we had a lot of money and did these shots first, and uh, it re- it works really well. It, it works very very well, I think. And so yeah, Lake Nowhere, 2016, definitely highly recommended for me. I liked it a lot. So uh, I hope you uh, guys seek it out and let me know what you thought of it if you do watch it. Hey fellas, long time caller, first time listener, I'm going to tell you about a couple recent watches for me. The first is one that I've been meaning to get to for some years, Roger Corman's 1959 film A Bucket of Blood. Corman shot it in five days for $50,000 which is really respectable. I did my customary IMDB trivia in for a picture I just watched, and I was reminded that this was the film that was shot on the same set as The Little Shop of Horrors. It's been a good while since I've watched the 60s non-musical, non-Rick Moranis version of that, so it didn't immediately strike me as looking the same, and with all credit to Corman and his team of underpaid geniuses who would go on to great things, I can't quite connect the two sets for the films together now. If you haven't seen it, 
It's a story set in the beatnik poetry world of the very late 1950s, with Dick Miller as a guy who picks up all the used cappuccino mugs in a coffee bar, filled with what I thought were some very fair parodies of the verbose artistic types that you can still find today, without having to look too hard actually. It was, um, it's a scene, it's a setting that's very reminiscent of Mike Myers as a coffee bar poet um, in San Francisco in the underrated and hilarious So I Married an Act Murderer. Uh, those scenes in the coffee bar with the poets and everything, they also reminded me, as so many things do, of Blackadder um, with the uh, pissed up and whinging Shelley, Byron and Coleridge enjoying their own flights of verbal fancy. Uh, plus a uh, change, plus a la meme chose. Um, so plain pour moi. Um, Dick Miller accidentally kills a cat, and Marseille, not in a shy way, he uh, wraps it up in the clay that he keeps around the house for his own artistic dreams. Um, and the poets, the people down at the shop, they decide that the cat, the clay cat, with the knife sticking out of it, is a masterpiece. This is a bit of a film where there's a tiny stumble because with its incredibly tight budget and shooting schedule there was no way it could ever have looked anything like a masterpiece uh, but always was going to be something a prop man knocked up for 50 cents before grabbing a cheese and tomato sandwich or whatever. So when the parodies of the self-conscious creative types are rhapsodising over this new piece called Dead Cat, you don't buy it at all. It's like in Walk the Line, where the story needs the powerful Old Testament rebellious rumble of Johnny Cash's actual voice, and instead you get a prison full of desperate men going crazy over the sound of Joaquin Phoenix sounding essentially on key. As you'd expect, Bucket of Blood goes on, and... Poor Dick Miller ends up killing some more people for art. Um, it's a good script, and when you've, you know, you, while you've probably guessed the ending, it's absolutely worth a watch. It's on YouTube in full, which is easy, and to my absolute and complete approval, it's only an hour and six minutes long. Dick Miller's face has not actually changed in about 60 years either, so well done to him. Another film that I'll talk about very briefly uh, is 1984's Night of the Comet, a film where the apocalypse happens and some valley girl sisters are left to deal with the dusty aftermath and the crazy near zombies that are left out there attacking them, whether it be at the multiplex where the older sister works or as they're trying to run away from the crooked scientists who have sealed themselves underground season one of Walking Dead style. Night of the Comet might be the most mid-80s film I've ever seen. The most mid-80s anything to ever mid-80s. It's got an incredible soundtrack that does take some cues from John Carpenter and the human lead and the uh, the synthetic sort of side of new waves. It's it's a walking synth store that you're with throughout. Um, I'm sure was an influence on It Follows as well. The film's basically very hard to credit as something that came from its actual time period. 
as opposed to a steeled production team in 2016 going out and sourcing all the cars and the hairstyles and the giant radios for a big budget period piece but it is an incredibly easy watch and it seems to be darker and harder tour than it actually is for a little while I won't spoil any of the plot but there was a moment where I thought uh, this is overreaching itself here it's uh, it's too unsure of its own tone but it turns out that there's a surprise that makes that criticism um, not you know something to pay attention to um, not much more to really say about Night of the Comet except that I really do recommend it and it's very fun and it doesn't let itself get too silly uh, for too long so that's that the last film I want to talk about is one that I didn't enjoy as much as the first two at all I've uh, been meaning to read Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern for a long time and I'm going to do it it's the next fiction book that I'm going to read. And so with that in mind, I thought that a good primer would be to watch a movie based on the book, which is famously one of the most, uh, one of the first postmodern uh, articles. Not that, you know, it's anything particularly new. Certainly Don Quixote from a century before has got uh, quite a few self-aware and meta moments. I'm reminded now of a conversation that Daniel had with uh, Kip Power on his most recent, as I record, episode of Considered a Ray Gun about John Christopher's Tripods trilogy, where Daniel jokingly says, Postmodern, right? That's the best form. That's the form to which all authors aspire. When they get there, they're at the top. So I would agree with Daniel in that it's not necessarily the best way of going. Um, I'm still going to read the book, but it was very, very great in as a film to have these postmodern interjections, these movie within a movie kind of setups. It's uh, it's a film with Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan who made a fairly nice little travelogue called The Trip where they try and one-up each other. You may have seen the the scene where they do dueling Michael Caine impersonations, which is quite funny. Um, and I like Coogan. Um I'm less warm on Bryden, who seems to have gotten to his uh, exalted position, mostly through being a friendly guy who does a good impersonation of Tom Jones. Um, but, you know, I'm a big Alan Partridge fan, and... I've seen and enjoyed Kujan in other things too. Um, but, yeah, this film, its uh, it keeps interrupting itself. It keeps going back and forwards. It thinks it's incredibly clever to have set it out in this way where we go back to seeing them as they have their makeup set up and we see meetings going on just off the side there's interviews that happens between uh, Tony Wilson and Steve Coogan that was one of the reasons why I thought I would enjoy this film uh, Cock and Ball Story is the uh, English subtitle is because I did quite enjoy not that it was a great film but I did quite enjoy 24 hour party people which was the previous Steve Coogan Michael Winterbottom collaboration Winterbottom being the director here because 
well for the for the first I'm a big fan of all those uh, Manchester bands that was on Factory Records that was uh, biopic of uh, the entire Factory scene and it just didn't follow through here it was a tiresome and tedious movie and some of this might be because I have purposely sought out a lot of these postmodern films a lot of uh, movies about movie making TV about making TVs um, I'm more than halfway through a rewatch of the Larry Sanders show and having a great time with it but I am fucking bored to death with all of these films about making films the whole show business maelstrom is maybe a tenth as interesting as the people who are within it believe it to be it's a subject that I find to be really over explained I think the subject has now been covered and the extent to which they think that the universality of these people and emotions is just not there there's far more <laughs> as I keep uh, coming back to here there's far more movies about this subject about making films than maybe any other career which makes sense you know write what you know and if you know the uh, the flim flam world of show business then you're going to write it but oh, I'm done I'm done after I finish this uh, this rewatch of Larry Sanders I don't think I will watch another one about the process unless there's a vampire involved off screen then I'll watch it yeah anyway listen um, I think I have rambled on for long enough here um, I love the show guys I really do it's my favourite movie podcast so uh, thank you drive through when the sun goes down and the moon comes up I turn into a teenage goo goo muck I cruise through the city and I roam the streets Looking for something that is nice to eat You'd better duck when I show up, the goo goo muck. I'm the night head hunter looking for a head. With the way out body underneath that head. I'll get you, baby, with a little luck. Tiger and a cuckoo muck. You better duck when I show up. The cuckoo muck.
city is a jungle and I'm a beast A teenage tiger looking for a feast I want the most and still I'll take the least I'm the Gugumba tiger and a teenage beast show up the Google Mac and sing baby like I've been telling you uh-huh. I'm the Google 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 hello they must be destroyed on site listeners Jack Graham here um I don't want to go on about the greatness of films that everybody who's already interested in this stuff already knows about and already thinks are great, so I won't mention the uh, original James Whale Universal Frankenstein movies or Bela Lugosi's turn in the uh, original Todd Browning Dracula. It's a bit of a mediocre film, actually, but Lugosi's great. But I guess I just haven't mentioned them, but, you know, they're great. But there are some other films in the Universal stable that uh, are less well-known. There's The Old Dark House from 1932. That's got Karloff in it as a uh, mad drunken butler, and also the one and only Ernest Thesiger, on fine form, features uh, the unforgettable sight of Karloff, Raymond Massey, Charles Lawton and Mervyn Douglas in a scrum, which you don't see every day, sadly. Now, before American International Pictures and Corman came along, Universal actually did some of their own spurious Poe adaptations. Uh, there's The Black Cat from 1934 and The Raven from 1935, both of which feature the Lugosi-Karloff team. The Raven's a bit funny these days, but it has a genuinely disturbing subtext about sadism. But The Black Cat is a weird masterpiece, and it should be better known. It's a film about mind control, occultism, war crimes, revenge, taking in necrophilia, torture, human sacrifice. It's barely an hour long. It's steeped in gorgeous expressionist design. Uh, It's a deeply irrational, strange film. It unfolds like a sort of Kafkaesque nightmare. Um, it, it's it's one to see, definitely. As much as I love some of the AIP ones with Vincent Price, especially Mask of the Red Death, the Black Cat got there first, and it's unforgettable stuff. It takes its cue from some of the early masterpieces of horror, which set about turning the screen into a playground for the morbid subconscious, for the celebration of irrationality, for the expression of the darkest, most incoherent fantasies and dreams, pioneering movies like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920 and Nosferatu from 1922, uh, both of them made before horror had quite been teased apart from expressionism and surrealism into a genre of its own, but I'm hopefully going to be guesting on Timberdos to talk about Nosferatu and the remake, so I won't go into that now. Um, just see these films if you haven't already. They're just as much surreal masterpieces as Bunuel and Dali's On Chien Andalou, 1929. Um, and if you ask me, they're strangely more powerful because of their attempts at a linear plot structure. It's as if the, the rational shell only intensifies the the effect of their profound inner irrationality. Um, moving on to Hammer, the other big horror studio. Um, some of their best films are also their lesser-known ones. I mean, I hope everybody knows about what is probably the best film from Hammer, The Devil Rides Out, so I won't go on about that. The original Dracula and Frankenstein movies are obviously classics. Um, most of the sequels are depressingly bad, but there are some good ones. Um, the ill-regarded third Frankenstein movie, The Evil of Frankenstein from 1964, I think it's actually one of the best ones, with a sort of down-at-heel heroic Baron Frankenstein, played wonderfully by Peter Cushing, who's sort of at the mercy of the greed and corruption of others. And Frankenstein created woman from 67's, one of the best Hammer films. 
It ignores the series' general hard materialism in favour of supernatural elements for a change, including ruminations on the soul and individual identity, and it features some great scenes of bastard rich boys meeting gory ends, which anticipates the female revenge exploitation films of the 70s. The best Dracula sequels are Dracula Prince of Darkness from 66, which is a decent film, and and, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula from 1970, which manages to be quite a good treatment of Victorian middle-class male hypocrisy, as well as being pretty creepy at times. Um, there's lesser-known hammers from the classic period, which are really good. The Gorgon from 64 is a deeply eerie movie. Uh, and uh, The Reptile from 66. It's a very multi-layered, creepy riff on the werewolf tale, featuring a very young Jacqueline Pierce, later of Blake Seven fame, and a rare opportunity for the great Michael Ripper to show what he can do with a big role. Um, less famous than the Karnstein films... Hammer's best non-Dracula vampire story is actually the deeply peculiar Kiss of the Vampire from 63, which is a neglected gem. Um, It imports vampires into a story about perverse family relationships and cults, and uh, you really need to see that one. On the subject of vampires, there's the TV serial version of Stephen King's Salem's Lot from 79, directed by Toe Pooper. Creeped me out as a kid, still stands up, much better than most King adaptations. Um, The Shining is still the greatest, whatever King himself thinks. And it's a film that has totally moved into my head, but I don't think I need to sell that to Tumbados listeners. Um, there's also uh, some recent films, Only Lovers Left Alive, and the unfairly neglected Byzantium. Uh, I think we're all a bit sick of vampires these days, but these are still good movies. Um, we're also all sick of zombies, but the Romero zombie films are pivotal classics, but again, there's no need to sell them here. Um, one of the best and most unusual vampire films ever is Kronos, which is a Mexican movie from 1993. It's actually Guillermo del Toro's first feature film. Uh, it's fantasy-inflected horror with some gore and some steampunk elements, but it gives steampunk that edge of the sinister that I think it should always have. Um, del Toro, of course, has gone on to make some great semi-horror, horror-inflected movies, uh, some great ones, some mediocre ones, but uh, this is a, a, a neglected gem. Um, there's Tony Scott's stylish, erotic vampire masterpiece, The Hunger, from 1983. If you ask me, it's one of the greatest, most beautiful horror movies ever made. And it's as much about the horror of immortality, about exploitation, you know, um, sexual exploitation, exploitation in other forms, fetishization of youth. It's a great film. Um, another film I probably don't need to plug over much here is uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria. But again, that's one of my all-time favorites. Going on a bit of a tangent, um, there's David Lynch movies. Uh, which are not quite horror films, but they, they certainly include horror elements. There's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me from 1992, which is underrated Lynch. Uh, there's definite aspects of, of horror in that, including some possession. Um, there's also Lost Highway from 1997, which has dreamlike surrealism and horrific moments, very disturbing. For my money, it could even be his best film. And of course, there's Eraser Head from 77, which, uh, which has sequences so disturbing they're almost unwatchable, capturing the genuine feeling of what it's like to have a nightmare. Um, an old favourite of mine from 1987 is Hellraiser, with a genuinely unique and unrepeatable ethos and aura all of its own. It's a bit dull in the middle, but... And you have the sequel from 88, Hellbound, uh, which is undeniably a hot mess, but it features some excellent surreal nightmare imagery. Um, don't bother with the rest of the sequels. No, really, don't. One of the things I love most about Hellraiser is the way it appropriates the ideas of the, the magical portal to another world, of impossible spaces, from British children's fiction, Narnia, the magic faraway tree, up to Doctor Who, of course, and turns it into its own dark, weird adult thing. Uh, Christopher Young's musical scores for those two films are unforgettable. Speaking of strange portals into other realities, there's a movie from 1955 called Three Cases of Murder, which is an anthology film featuring, well, 
three cases of murder. The second and third, uh, the one the one at the end features Orson Welles, are okay, but the first is why we're here. It's called The Picture, and it's about a museum worker who finds himself inside one of the paintings on the museum walls. I won't tell you any more about it. Go out and seek it out if you haven't already. It's not exactly horror, but when I saw it as a kid, it totally freaked me out, and revisiting it as an adult, I discovered that it stands up as a unique, creepy, unsettling experience. Um, on the subject of Orson Welles, one of his films is an adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth from 1948, which is, of course, partly a story of the supernatural. Uh, it's one of Orson's most neglected films, uh, to the extent that the Welles movie can be neglected. But it's very powerful, uh, real aura of the supernatural, of the sinister, the witch scenes are genuinely uncanny. Um, a film that I always mentally bracket with three cases of murder is Dead of Night from 1945, which is another black-and-white British anthology movie. Uh, it tells a series of stories about the supernatural with an overarching story about doom and predestination. It's famous for the segment featuring Michael Redgrave as a ventriloquist with a sinister dummy, which seems to have a mind of its own, unless it's just his own mind fracturing. Staying in Britain, uh, is Witchfinder General. That's a film I just can't watch. It's too nasty for me. Um, but it's part of a genre I love, which is folk horror. Um, the other most famous folk horror movie is The Wicker Man, but again, that doesn't need any puffing from me. Um, but there's the lesser known and in some ways even better uh, folk occultism movie, Blood on Satan's Claw from 1970. Um, whereas Witchfinder General and uh, Wicker Man don't explicitly evoke the supernatural, Blood on Satan's Claw, Satan's Claw definitely does and creates a menacing atmosphere of evil and corruption. Um, it's a film that gives free reign to a an unfortunate strain in, in, in British society, which is a deep-seated antipathy towards and fear of young people and children. Um, but then the, the best horror is often the horror that allows us to wallow in our nastier impulses. Um, most re More recently, Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump's instant classic, A Field in England, 2013, reinvigorated the folk horror genre, perhaps so well that the reinvigoration will just stop there, because nobody wants to pick up the ball, you know. Uh, that happens sometimes. It's hard to categorise it in terms of genre, a field in England, but it definitely has horror elements, and it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Some of my favourite horror films are actually sci-fi, so they don't quite fit here, which means I'll just have to mention Alien, The Thing, and They Live. These are all huge films for me. Another film that fits sort of into that 80s sci-fi horror slot is Society, which is a, another angry social satire mixed with imaginative gross-out body horror. And then, of course, there's Cronenberg's absolutely matchless Videodrome. Um, talking of John Carpenter, he created one of my favourite ghost films, which is The Fog. Um, one of his less popular films, but it, uh, it, it's fantastic, I think. Uh, it falls apart a bit towards the end, but the first half of the film is incredibly spooky and has a superb musical soundtrack. Possibly my favourite ghost movie of all time is The Haunting from 1963, directed by Robert Wise, based on The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which is one of the greatest uh, spooky books ever written. Um, similarly, there's a good movie of Richard Matheson's so-so novel Hell House called The Legend of Hell House. That's well worth watching. Back in neglected gem territory, there's a movie called The Changeling from 1980. It's a Canadian production, Lee, uh, an absolutely terrifying haunted house film. Certainly was for me as a kid, which also works as moving drama. Um, simply one of the best scary movies ever, I think. It's quite gentle, uh, but all the more effective for that. Uh, the fear comes from whispers and noises and the feeling of being watched, and the ghost has a comprehensible personality and purpose. Absolutely brilliant film starring George C. Scott. Ghost movies in the last few years have tended to labour under the shadow of The Babadook, uh, which is a massively overrated film, if you ask me. I have fundamental philosophical differences with how it treats its subject and its genre, um, as I do with a similar film that's generally considered a classic from 1961, The Innocents. Um, Triangle from 2009, uh, a sort of semi-forgotten film, touches on similar, similar territory to these movies, but better in my opinion, because it doesn't, well, I <laughs> can't really talk about this without spoilers, but um, 
Yeah, it was directed by Christopher Smith, who also directed Creep, which is a nice example of London underground gothic, which is a favourite genre of mine. Um, also impressive from recent years, or an Australian ghost movie called Backtrack, uh, and a film called The Boy, which, well, again, I can't go into it without spoiling it, but it worked for me. Um, also from recent times is The Witch, a film I've now watched several times, and which has become more and more impressive with every viewing. Seriously good stuff. Probably going to turn out to be an all-time classic. Um, cheating a bit and moving on to spooky TV, um, I would personally recommend Lost Hearts, which is the first of the dramatised TV films based on M.R. James' stories by the BBC, directed by Lawrence Gordon Clark back in the 70s. Um, watch the others by all means, but I personally think they're overrated based on nostalgia, but Lost Hearts still packs a real punch. Uh, the best ever M.R. James adaptations for TV, I think, uh, were for a series called Ghost Stories for Christmas in 2000. They're basically just Christopher Lee playing M.R. James, performing some of his best stories. But if you ask me, they're perfect. Very atmospheric. You've got the stories themselves, abridged of course, but um, with M.R. James' own turn of phrase. They're all on YouTube. Uh, one of them, The Ash Tree, which is the best one, wasn't released on DVD owing to rights issues, so I uploaded it to YouTube myself. You can thank me later. There's also a TV series called Supernatural. No, not that one. I'm talking about the eccentric BBC anthology series from 1977. Especially the two-part werewolf story, that's corking. Rounding up, if anybody hasn't seen the indescribable Michael Mann film The Keep from 1983, rectify that. Uh, there's Roman Polanski's depiction of a mental breakdown in Repulsion which in 1965, which is a movie I have problems with, but it has some fantastic surreal imagery. Um, there's Speaking of which, there's Cocteau's gorgeous La Belle et la Bête from 1946, which creates a uniquely unsettling atmosphere with wonderfully weird images. Not exactly a horror film, but a masterpiece of the uncanny. Um, the Watcher in the Woods from 1980 terrified me as a kid, as did Audrey Rose from 77, another one from Robert Wise. And then there's the almost unbearably disturbing yet poetic Les Yeux Sans Visage from 1960, The Eyes Without a Face. And finally, one of the most neglected films from a great director, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs, which is not only a great horror film, but also an angry satire of racist, plutocratic capitalist America, and a call for solidarity among working people across race divides, and a demand for social justice. No, it really is. Go and watch it. And finally, there's a movie everyone should see, a Peter Strickland movie from a few years ago called Barbarian Sound Studio. It's not exactly a horror film, but it's about the making of a horror film and about how the film seeps into the mind of a sound engineer working on it, played by Toby Jones. And in my opinion, it's one of the finest films of the last decade. Well, thanks for letting me butt in. Enjoy the rest of this episode of Tumbados. Tumbados. And I wish you all a happy and safe Samhain. Yeah.
you guys enjoyed listening to those two segments from Jack Graham and James Murphy as much as I did. Thank you again gentlemen for providing such excellent work for the bonus content here and of course this is not going to be the last time you hear these guys on the podcast. In fact they're both going to show up again this month. Like I said before James Murphy is going to show up on the very next official episode of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. He's going to be talking to me and Daniel about The Skull and Theater of Blood, and that was a fun episode, I can tell you, uh, after we got through some technical difficulties, uh, but you won't notice that through the magic of podcast editing, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Jack Graham is going to show up on the very next episode after that, making his second appearance. There we're going to be talking about the 1922 vampire film Nosferatu, as well as the remake from 1979 from Werner Herzog. And that should be a lot of fun. I expect that to be a pretty good discussion, I think. It might be a pretty big episode, too. We're going to have some more bonus content, of course, but the final episode is going to be just in time for Halloween, and it's going to be another installment of TMB DOS Radio from our good friend, the one last true wolf man of the radio, Lee Van Teeth. He's going to come back with some Halloween songs for all you boys and girls out there trick-or-treating. Or just staying at home and spiking the punch and uh, taking your masks off and doing the nasty. Either way, Lee Van Teeth approves. But uh, if you want to find Jack Graham, he is a writer and fellow podcaster who can be found at Uditorum Press, where he writes a blog there called Shabugan Graffiti. He also hosts his podcast from there as well, called The Shabcast. Uh, although he does often focus on politics and social issues, he does like to talk about movies and things of that nature as well, and he does a very thoughtful and interesting job of it, so I would recommend you check him out and see if you like what he has to say. James Murphy is also one part of the Pex Lives podcast, which, although it is centered around Doctor Who, has been quietly moving to covering films, including a recent and still ongoing series on classic westerns, and he's also doing a chronological review of the filmography of Amicus Studios. That's a little slower going, but the episodes are excellent, and I would definitely recommend them. I'll provide links in the show notes where you can find both of these gentlemen's work, and uh, I hope you follow them and uh, find them interesting. So yeah, until then, guys, we're going to go with some music of some sort. Hope you enjoyed this episode again, and we will see you guys later.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>